It is a potent thing for the church to get together and discover, rediscover, I guess, from the scriptures its own identity as a creative minority amidst a culture that is antagonistic in some ways toward the way of Jesus. And I think that is what the Holy Spirit is doing. He's awakening his church to see his beautiful bride's mission to really beautify cities and beautify people's lives with the gospel in a time and place that is um, antagonistic. And I think um, that's appropriate because this, um, this topic I've been given for tonight is a topic of resistance. And I wanna read from you Daniel chapter four, if you can. So if you turn to Daniel four, we'll get into it. I have my paper Bible. Daniel 4 is interesting because it's in a very different language from the rest of the Bible. It's not in Hebrew, it's not in Greek, it's in Aramaic. It's one of the few places in the Bible that's in this weird off language. Because it's dictated, probably, they think it's dictated by Nebuchadnezzar himself. So like Nebuchadnezzar, pagan, anti-Yahweh king, is writing Bible. Figure that one out. But King Nebuchadnezzar, he has an interesting uh, story, a story of his transformation, his encounter with Yahweh's people, his encounter with Yahweh himself. And I think there's a huge, huge lesson here for us tonight. So without any further ado, let's get into it. Daniel chapter four, verses one through four. I'll read it out loud. King Nebuchadnezzar, so he addresses himself, to the nations and peoples of every language who live in all the earth, may you prosper greatly. It is my pleasure to tell you about the miraculous signs and wonders that the Most High God has performed for me. How great are his signs, how mighty his wonders. His kingdom is an eternal kingdom. His dominion endures from generation to generation. I, Nebuchadnezzar, was at home in my palace, contented and prosperous. So those First four verses, remember, Nebuchadnezzar dictated or authored this chapter of scripture, but we're unsure whether these four verses are a demonstration of a political piety, okay? Did Nebuchadnezzar really mean all of these praises toward the God of heaven? Was he really believing this with all his heart, or was he declaring a politically expedient doxology at that moment? Tragically, some of our current politicians feel obligated to demonstrate an element of spirituality. It's kind of always been the case, but do we really know if they believe it? Or is it expedient to get the evangelical vote? I don't know uh, until I see his or her life, we don't know until we can see them in times of incredible blessing and prosperity or times of dark heartache when faith is the default of those who wish to lead us. So let's read on though, verse five. I had a dream that made me afraid. So the emperor continues to give his story. I had a dream that made me afraid. As I was lying in bed, the images and visions that passed through my mind terrified me. So I commanded that all the wise men of Babylon be brought before me to interpret the dream for me. When the magicians, enchanters, astrologers, and diviners came, I told them the dream, but they could not interpret it for me. So there it is. He calls the magicians. He calls the... Um, astrologers and diviners and all the ones that would work their funky magic and they couldn't do it. They couldn't tell him what his dream was all about. And, and then verse eight, it says, and finally, and finally Daniel came into my presence and I told him the dream. He is called Belteshazzar after the name of my God and the spirit of the holy gods is in him. It says, this 
part of the story is a powerful reminder for us as a creative minority. And I don't know if I need to go back over that. Josh has done a great job. I listened through the podcast, a creative minority, a group of people within a broader culture that realizes they don't have the floor. They don't have the position of centrality or influence. So what they do is they push forward an alternate story in order for the beauty of the city and the beauty of the gospel to be made manifest in the place that they live. That is the job, it's a Rabbi Sachs thing, but that's also the job of Christians in a secular age, to be that creative minority that pushes the kingdom forward. So this part of the story, when it says, finally Daniel came, this is the part of the story that reminds us, hey, church, Jesus followers, be patient with God. We don't have to beat down the doors of culture for God's voice to be heard. Our gracious heavenly Father will give us a finally. Uh, when desperate people exhaust all other options, uh, those desperate people seeking solutions will inevitably at some point find Jesus people. Uh, we don't have to be arrogant, proud, or pushy. We don't have to walk up and down the street with ridiculous signs or bullhorns or placards that are offensive and full of anger. We can be present in our city in humility and faithfulness and love and empathy for everyone, knowing that God's kingdom will stand, the gates of hell cannot prevail against the church, and Yahweh has the last word. Um, so the, the second half of verse 8b is interesting too. It's like a parenthetical phrase. Nebuchadnezzar adds a parenthesis. Daniel's called Belteshazzar after the name of my God, and the spirit of the holy gods is in him. He adds a little commentary on the, holy, <laughs> the power of Daniel. I love that. Nebuchadnezzar can't make heads or tails of Daniel's theology because he says Daniel's filled with the spirit of the pagan deities, which is not obviously the case. He's filled with the spirit of Yahweh. He can't make heads or tails of Daniel's theology or religion, but he can see the spirit, the supernatural, mystical power of God at work in Daniel for the good of the city that Nebuchadnezzar was ruling over, which is interesting. So we're gonna work through the rest of the text, and then I'm gonna add a few comments, and then we're gonna bring it home to some real practical and even like difficult, applicable territory. So um, verse nine, I said, Belteshazzar, chief of the magicians, I know that the spirit of the holy gods is in you, and no mystery is too difficult for you. Here's my dream, interpret it for me. These are the visions I saw while lying in bed. I looked. And there before me stood a tree in the middle of the land. Its height was enormous. The tree grew large and strong, and its top touched the sky. It was visible to the ends of the earth. Its leaves were beautiful, its fruit abundant, and on it was food for all. Under it, the wild animals found shelter, and the birds lived in its branches. From it, every creature was fed. Okay? In the visions I saw while lying in my bed, I looked. I always thought the cadence of this passage is very Dr. Seuss-ish, I don't know. In the visions I saw lying on my bed, I looked and behold, in my head, or whatever. And there before me was a holy one, a messenger coming down from heaven. He called in a loud voice, cut down the tree and trim off its branches, strip off its leaves and scatter its fruit. Let the animals flee from under it and the birds from its branches. But let the stump and its roots bound with iron and bronze remain in the ground in the grass of the field. Let him be drenched with the dew of heaven and let him live with the animals among the plants of the earth. Let his mind be changed from that of a man and let him be given the mind of an animal. Still seven times or seven years passed by for him. 
The decision is announced by messengers. The holy ones declare the verdict so that the living may know that the most high is sovereign over all kingdoms on the earth and gives them to anyone he wishes and sets over them the lowliest of people. This is the dream that I, King Nebuchadnezzar, had. Now, Belteshazzar, tell me what it means, for none of the wise men in my kingdom can interpret it for me, but you can, because the spirit of the holy gods is in you. It's interesting that God uses the very thing that made Nebuchadnezzar proud, the Hanging Gardens, Babylon, one of the seven ancient wonders of the world. God uses the imagery of the Hanging Gardens of Babylon, the very thing that Nebuchadnezzar was so stoked on. He uses that to show him how messed up he was in his head and how topsy-turvy his agenda was and how much he was oppressing the people that were planting the gardens for him. It was through that imagery that God communicated to Nebuchadnezzar his immediate need to be humbled. It's often the thing we're most good at. <laughs> that is the thing that God uses to uh, communicate to us our need for God's goodness and God's humbling power. So verse 19, moving on quickly because it's a long text, I want to save time. Then Daniel, also called Belteshazzar, was greatly perplexed for a time and his thoughts terrified him. So the king said, Belteshazzar, do not let the dream or its meaning alarm you. And Belteshazzar answered, Daniel answered, my lord, if only the dream applied to your enemies and its meaning to your adversaries. In other words, this is bad news for my king, my pagan, slimy, uh, just anti-Yahweh, oppressive, top-down, power-hungry, empirical king. This is bad news for you, and I, I actually have compassion for you. I think that's huge, like, for the prophetic witness of God's people. I think the true prophetic people of God and culture are those who bear this kind of compassion for those above and below them on the totem pole. Um, oh, king, if only this dream were true of your enemies. God's prophets bear that kind of humility and peace toward their enemies. Oh, king, if only this dream were for your enemies, but it's not, it's for you, so here goes nothing, is the spirit of this. So, verses 20 through 26, here it is, here's the interpretation. The tree you saw, which grew large and strong, with its top touching the sky, visible to the whole earth, with beautiful leaves, you know that one you just dreamed about? I love that. Uh, your majesty, verse 22, you are that tree. You've become great and strong. Your greatness has grown until it reaches the sky, and your, do your dominion extends to distant parts of the earth. Your majesty saw a holy one, a messenger, coming down from heaven and saying, cut down the tree and destroy it, but leave the stump bound with iron and bronze in the grass of the field while its roots remain in the ground. Let him be drenched with the dew of heaven. Let him live with the wild animals until seven times pass by for him. And this is the interpretation, your majesty. And this is the decree the Most High has issued against my Lord the King. You will be driven away from people and will live with the wild animals. You will eat grass like the ox and be drenched with the dew of heaven. Seven times or seven years will pass by for you until you acknowledge that the Most High is sovereign over all kingdoms of the earth. And the sovereign King of the earth gives the nations to anyone he wishes. The command to leave the stump of the tree with its roots means that your kingdom will be restored to you when you acknowledge that heaven rules. Therefore, your majesty, be pleased to accept my advice. Here's Daniel's advice. This is the prophetic witness. 
This little verse, this little blurb is what this whole chapter kind of amounts to. Practically speaking, here's Daniel's advice. Renounce your sins by doing what is right and your wickedness by being kind to the oppressed. It may be then that your prosperity will continue. Okay, so that verse, verse 27, is the crucial point of the story. For eight verses, even more, Daniel simply interprets the meaning of Nebuchadnezzar's dream back to him. And then in a single verse, Daniel offers his advice, which I believe is like the key prophetic moment of the chapter. Specifically, it's this. Do what is right, namely by being kind to the marginalized, by being kind to the oppressed person. This is the kind of advice Yahweh's people, Van City Church, have to offer the prevailing culture, especially a culture that enjoys the perks and privileges of its position as an empire. Okay, and then we can read the ending. Verse 28, and all this happened to King, the King Nebuchadnezzar. It all became crazy, 12 months later. And the king was walking on the roof of the royal palace of Babylon. It's almost like the dream was out of sight, out of mind at this point. And he said, is not this the great Babylon I've built as a royal residence by my mighty power and for the glory of my majesty? Even as the words were on his lips, a voice came from heaven. This is what is decreed for you, King Nebuchadnezzar. Your royal authority has been taken from you. You will be driven away from people and will live with the wild animals. You'll eat grass like the ox. Seven years will pass until you acknowledge God. Verse 33, immediately, what had been said about Nebuchadnezzar was fulfilled. He was driven away from his people, ate grass like the ox, his body covered with dew until his hair grew long and his nails turned into like claws of a bird, it says. Verse 34, at the end of that time, I, Nebuchadnezzar, raised my eyes toward heaven and my sanity was restored. This is seven years later. Then I praised the Most High. I honored and glorified him who lives forever. His dominion is an eternal dominion. Here's the song, the song of Nebuchadnezzar. His dominion is an eternal dominion. His kingdom endures from generation to generation. All the peoples of the earth are regarded as nothing. At this point, there's an air of humility in this song. All people, this this inherently includes himself. All people are regarded as nothing. He does as he pleases with the powers of heaven and the peoples of the earth. No one can hold back his hand or say to him, what have you done? At the same time that my sanity was restored, my honor and splendor were returned to me for the glory of my kingdom. My advisors and nobles sought me out, and I was restored to my throne and became even greater than before. Now I, Nebuchadnezzar, praise and exalt and glorify the king of heaven because Everything he does is right and all his ways are just. So now Nebuchadnezzar's appealing to the justice of Yahweh. This wasn't in Nebuchadnezzar's praise of Yahweh before. It's just the glorious splendor, this God that gives him all the perks. But now he praises God's just character, the character of Yahweh that brings the marginalized and the oppressed out from under and out from the outsides into the center and up to the top, okay? I celebrate that character of God. And then the last line, those who walk in pride, he's able to humble. He learned that hard. Those who walk in pride, he's able to humble. Okay, so we've read through the chapter. I love the public reading of scripture. I love just reading through the narrative of the text like that. Uh, Having read through it, there's one thing that's clear from the beginning, from the outset of this text. 
it is that Nebuchadnezzar was the beneficiary of the greatest empire in the ancient world. Okay? He was top dog. Even Nebuchadnezzar's greeting at the beginning of this chapter, when he writes to the other nations, it's in terms of wealth. May you greatly prosper. That's, that's his greeting, not grace and peace like Paul. And it's like, may you greatly prosper is how he blesses the nations. And, and, and I know Josh talked about empire last week. I listened to it, actually read the transcript. Powerful, beautiful stuff and very helpful for understanding the milieu we're in and, and how to like, I don't know, use the words, you know, the whole, uh, use the words in the right way that you're supposed to use in order to communicate in a way that is understood by people that don't even see the milieu they're a part of. So, so helpful uh, what Josh did with you last week. So we don't need to go there and define empire and all that necessarily. But I do want to say that empire is an interesting thing. It's a funny thing. Human empires are funny things. Uh, God loves nations. By that, I mean God loves nations. He loves people. God loves diversity. He loves ethnicity. God loves culture. But what God clearly does not love is empire. Uh, and by empire, we mean what the Bible means. We mean what people normally mean when they talk about empires. Militarily powerful, economically wealthy nation states who believe they have a right to rule other nations with a manifest destiny to shape history according to their own agenda regardless of the perceived nobility or moral rightness of said agenda. The reason God is opposed to this uh, family and friends, the reason he's opposed to this is because this is the very thing God the Father's promised to his son Jesus. It's the very thing God has promised, that all nations would be subservient, every ethnicity and every culture would be subservient to the Son, Jesus, upon whose shoulders the government that has no end rests, okay? So empires, em human empires, in their assumption that they have the right to rule the nations and shape history according to their own agendas, what they do is they naturally become a rival to Jesus Christ, and to the promise the Father has made to the Son in Daniel, chapter 7, we'll see, that the Son would be the Lord and the nations would be his inheritance, okay? So empires set themselves up to oppose the will of God, and they become tremendous sources of oppression, Throughout history, and I don't think we need to go through like World History 101 in order to prove that. You can glance quick at just about any time period and you'll see that to be the case. And American Christians, which most of us I assume are, sorry for presuming if we all are, but American Christians have the unique experience of trying to figure out what does it mean to be a Christian, a heavenly citizen, a citizen of heaven's culture and kingdom within a current super dominant earthly empire. And to a certain extent, our Russian brothers and sisters have this challenge right now as well. So for example, uh, just a silly example, bring it home to bring it home to the Couve. Okay. So you go driving through the streets of Vancouver, and just an example, you probably it probably won't take long before you see a church. At least this is how I grew up in Southern California. It won't take long before you see a church with a flag out front. Um, uh, this was a norm in the churches I grew up in down in SoCal, and I mean Josh grew up in the South. American South, it's the no, you see a flag out front, American flag or whatever. So since they're cost effective, there's only one flag pole, so they want to have a Christian flag too. Um, you know the Christian flag, like the one, I don't know, the one with, it's like mostly white with like a corner, blue crop, blue, red, white, and blue still. Um, 
No, I mean, I'm not a, necessarily a huge fan of the flag myself because it's so obviously a riff on the American flag colors and template and stuff. But, uh, <clears throat> but you get the idea. It's, it's, supposed, it's supposed to represent Jesus' kingdom or something, whatever. Uh, but they only, have, they only have one flagpole. So which flag is on top? Uh, the American flag's on top. And right below, it's a Christian flag on the same pole. What does that say? I mean, flags are symbols. And what, what is that symbolism there? Uh, it, symbolism, symbolism. I think I can speak somewhat collectively, objectively. Symbolism is, yeah, we love Jesus and such, but everything's subservient to the dedication to the empire. Um, many would interrupt and that say, oh, it doesn't mean that's not what it means. It's just tradition. Oh, yeah, well, just, j- just swap them. Um, just reverse them and see what happens. Just try that. Like, go out on Saturday night and, like, like with your, like, toilet paper. No, nothing. It's like, you know, your vans. Go out on Saturday night and, and like, take them down, switcheroo, and put the, put the American flag at the bottom and see what happens the next week. It would be, it would be if any, it, at the very least, it would be seen as a statement, no doubt, with that topsy-turvy. And, and this just might prompt what some call an eruption of reality, okay? Uh, comedians and prophets have this thing in common. They know how to prompt eruptions of reality. That's what makes comedians so funny, right? They, they, they reveal twisted pieces of reality that were mostly like unseen under a layer or two. And prophets do the same thing. They just take it a step further. They call for change. Nobody laughs with a prophet. Uh, that's why Jim Gaffigan, you know, can rail on donuts for 10 minutes in a standout, in a sellout stand-up, but the minute you actually physically walk through a donut shop telling people, you know how many calories that is? Or like, there goes your four-mile run, or you know you're, you're exchanging that donut for a dance at your granddaughter's wedding or something. Like, the moment you go, it's, it's watch out at that point. Comedians address brokenness, yet demand nothing. It's what we love them for. Um, prophets address brokenness and demand healing, okay? I believe Daniel's life is a loud, clear message to our generation. Our generation has more than enough comedians already and not nearly enough prophetic witnesses. What do I mean? Well, our comedians are people, and myself sometimes, sadly, myself included, who pick up a mic a blog or social media post to poke fun at the system, air their doubts about religion, say something sarcastic about the American dream, and while they're at it, bash their upbringing, why not, and then close their laptop in the coffee shop, hop on their bike, and unaffectedly just move on to the next thing until, obviously, the next time they open their laptop and air their opinions. Um, But being a prophetic witness in our world, being a creative minority in a secularized empire requires more than that. True prophetic witness doesn't just cynically poke at problem parts in the world. Uh, Like Daniel, prophetic witness critiques systemic sin through words and deeds. Lifestyle, an alternate lifestyle together in community. But the difficult, and I'm sorry if I'm uh, going a mile a minute here, but I really want to get this across. The difficulty with critiquing systemic sin is that it's almost impossible to in an empire. Okay, the reason for this is we're all complicit. Uh, we're, we all are. Um, this is where humility comes in. This is a Lord have mercy on us. Ezekiel type of prayer, have mercy on us all. Uh, that's the kind of witness that this is. And what also makes this tough is 
Systemic sin, like institutional sin, is also the term for what we often call, we have other terms for it, like the economy um, or security. And we hardly have any imagination for conceiving of how we can even be human without these things. So here's what happens. It's way easier for me to get up here uh, behind a pulpit and preach a resistance sermon that focuses on our responsibility to resist personal greed and be generous or whatever. And, and everyone can nod their heads and say yes and amen, don't be greedy. But if you start critiquing systems of sin that are fueled by the necessary engine of greed, look out, you're asking for trouble because we've got to keep our clothes cheap. Same thing with violence. Don't abuse, don't, like obviously I can preach, don't, don't be violent, don't abuse, and don't, don't be an abusive person, and don't pick fights with people, and we can like, yeah, amen, amen. But if we have our collective security guaranteed by massive violence, watch out, you can't critique that. Like, um, we could call those things greed and violence, but we don't, we call them the economy and security. These things are the most sacred things in the life of an empire. And from our perspective as a creative minority, from our perspective inside one of the greatest empires the world has ever known, so many of these, these things are often beyond critique. Very difficult. It takes creativity for the minority by the power of the Spirit. It takes a prophet. It takes Daniel speaking humbly and compassionately, but boldly and unapologetically to critique Nebuchadnezzar for his unparalleled injustice at the expense of the oppressed. Because Daniel 4, 27, remember Daniel's one piece of advice. After all said and done, repent of your wickedness, show kindness to the oppressed. That was the one takeaway for Neb. This is the right and just nature of Yahweh that Nebuchadnezzar realizes at the end of the chapter. This is the right and just nature. God brings the outsider in. God brings the marginalized, worthless person into the place of honor. Goodness gracious, God's people do the same. That is what this is all about. So with our remaining time together, we're gonna get to this landing the plane here. Uh, we're gonna look at what I believe is one of the biggest justice issues currently on the floor in America today and how we as a prophetic presence of Yahweh are being called to be the living resistance against injustice and oppression. Here it is. Okay, five months ago, on April 11th, Gallup Poll released a survey, U.S. Worries, entitled United States Worries About Race Relations Reach a New High. The poll surveyed over 1,000 adults in all 50 states, ages 18 and older, and the percentage of Americans worried a, quote, great deal about race relations jumped from 17% in 2014 to 35% in 2016. That was 35% of Americans three months ago were concerned, greatly concerned that race relations were just super alarming. Can't imagine what it is now after the horrific killings in July. So in light of the current climate we're living in, this is something we have to talk about as a community in the space we inhabit. Uh, as a family, we have to give ourselves permission. This requires permission to step into the awkward together and ask one another the tough, gritty, raw questions. And sometimes it goes like this. You hear, you hear the banter, whether it's social media or Fox or CNN or whatever, you hear the banter. All lives matter. Black lives matter. All lives matter. 
Black Lives Matter. Which is it? And we're left, which is What are we doing? What, what is this conversation about? Which is it? And in light of the suffering and oppression in our country, that's one of the biggest justice issues on the floor. And so, uh, and not just for communities of color, for all communities in America, especially for the multi-ethnic, multicultural community of the Spirit called the church. So what does the gospel have to say to this? What does the gospel say? Do all lives matter or do black lives matter? And how do we put this together? Um, Daniel has something to say to this. But about 600 years after Daniel, uh, there was a miracle that happened in the fields outside of an ancient Israelite city. Luke 2, 8 through 10, there it is. There were, there were shepherds living out in the fields nearby, watching over their flocks at night. And an angel of the Lord appeared to them. You guys know the Christmas story. The glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were terrified. But the angel said, do not be afraid. I bring you good news that will cause great joy for all the people. And I want to point out to you one of the great features of the gospel that we see in verse 10. Rejoice, it says. This good news is for all people. And that's absolutely true. The gospel is for everybody. And Jesus is the savior of all equally. That's built into our spiritual DNA as followers of Jesus. The gospel is for the rich, for the poor, for the young, for the old, for men, for women, for black, for white, for Native American, for brown, for Asian. But a couple of things that make this gospel unique. Um, number one, all have sinned. Because all are born in Adam. In other words, the choice we made Adam made, and the choice Adam made, we made, so we're all guilty. So we're all in that boat. Number two, all are image bearers of God. We're all made in his image and therefore equally possess unquantifiable value, okay? So all of us collectively bear the image of God, but we also recognize the image of God is broken in all of us. All of us are in that broken boat. So, and this is interesting, to compensate for brokenness our tendency is to elevate certain pieces of humanity as the primary image of God, whether it's like, let's talk about gender, and this is the most important thing, or sexuality, or, or culture, or race. We have this tendency to elevate certain broken pieces of humanity over and against others, and we worship those broken pieces as the ultimate identifying marks of what it means to be human. But in reality, all of these things are merely shards of the broken image, the beautiful yet broken image of God. So we're all image bearers and we're all sinners, okay? Let's get, let's, get that clear. let's get that clear. And the gospel goes out to all and that's everyone equally. And the gospel affirms that yes, all lives matter, of course. All lives matter, period. Case closed, done. It affirms all of life. All are invited into the household of faith. All receive that invitation from God because all lives matter. And yet, and yet, as we've seen through Daniel's witness, and if you read the Old Testament through, through puny Israel and for little David who became champion king, and yet the Bible also affirms, although all lives matter, the gospel goes forth often first and foremost through the lives of those who don't, okay? Shepherds outside Bethlehem, 
Again, the shepherds were bottom of the barrel, socially ostracized, loners, marginalized. They were pushed far away from the centers of power. They weren't even allowed to, com- to participate in many religious practices in Israel. And yet, when the angel shows up, planet Earth, the angels show up to bring Messiah, they don't show up to the elite. They don't show up to the religious educated. What do they say? They say shepherds' lives matter on that night outside in the field. That's what they say. They, they, the shepherds, not the religious elite, are the first group entrusted with the good news that all lives have value. And they're the ones who run into the city with the message and the beautiful feet that bring the good news. And that's what the gospel does. It proclaims that all lives matter. But in order for it to get there, in order, for, in order to get to the all lives matter proclamation, it has to come through a people whose culture and life at the time doesn't. This is why Jesus showed up to the Samaritan woman in John 4 and says loudly, Samaritan women matter to a bunch of men that were Jews that would have heard loud and clear that that's what Jesus was saying. This ticked off the religious community. Jesus lifted up women in general in a time when women weren't seen as people but property. And he said, women's lives matter. When he spoke with Gentiles, he blew apart the popular Jewish idea that the Messiah only meant hope for the Jews. And he said, Gentiles' lives matter. And my goodness, was that explosive. Good grief. Yes, we're all sinners. Yes, we're all of the image of God equally, but we, but we live in a society that isn't equal, okay? Jesus stepped into a society that was a lot like ours. It was very much like Daniel's society with an emperor at the top and people in control that were at the center of power and people that were being oppressed that were far from the centers of power. And Jesus grew up in that environment, that climate. So Jesus starts as a decentralized minority. He starts there, and that's where the kingdom of God breaks in. Now, so what? <laughs> how, do we, how do we engage this? How do we go, okay, let's, let's grab onto the prophetic witness together. Let's, let's move forward. How do we live out Yahweh's character and gracious service to the poor? How do we, how do, we do not, just, not just be Daniel, but also obey Daniel? Like, how do we change our minds to, my goodness, let's be all about kindness to the oppressed, even at the expense of our comforts. What does that look like? Because right now we see the gut-wrenching killings of Alton Sterling and Philando Castile and the, 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 the pendulum-swinging responses and the killings of policemen in Dallas. We see these things and the hurt and the grief. In, right now, the hurt and the grief in the black community in North Portland and here in Vancouver, we see, we see that. And, and, and honestly, it's a community, the black community here in Portland, uh, for most of us in this room, their day-to-day reality is just not ours. Let's, I mean, obviously, let's face that. Like we, my goodness, let's be real. Most of us don't live in that reality. And we ask, Lord God, God, Almighty God, creator of heaven and earth, the same God that, the same God that whipped Nebuchadnezzar into shape, whip us into your shape. What are we to do? How do we, as the community of the Spirit, step in and be the healing presence to resist the power of empire that oppresses people? So to wrap up, here are, the, here are two points to consider. Um, and these two points are from Pastor Eric Knox. He's a pastor. He's a black pastor over at Imago Day on the east side of Portland. Number one, this is very helpful, <laughs> practical takeaway, being the prophetic witness. Number one, we look at the scriptures 
not as a way to think about the poor, but rather we look at the scriptures as a way to listen and learn from the poor. Big difference. So we don't go to the scriptures and say, okay, so what does the Bible teach us about poor people this morning in my devos or whatever? We look at the scriptures and ask the much harder question, how do I engage with my community in a way that I'm learning in person with the poor, with the marginalized, from those disconnected from power? Uh, A friend of mine who I've been pen pals with for several years, he's helped me think through a lot. He wrote this article that's absolutely stunning, and I'm going to read it for you right now. Brian Zond is his name. He's a white male pastor who had an epiphany of how he must come to the scriptures in order to rightly engage uh, the world on behalf of Yahweh as Yahweh's people. And so pay attention. This is crazy. He says, me as a white male, I can no longer see myself as the persecuted minority. I'm not a Hebrew slave suffering in Egypt. I'm not a conquered Judean deported to Babylon, and I'm not a first century Jew living under Roman occupation. I'm a citizen of a superpower. I was born among the conquerors. I live in the empire. But I want to read the Bible and think it's talking to me, and this is a problem. One of the most remarkable things about the Bible is that in it we find the narrative told from the perspective of the poor, the oppressed, the enslaved, the conquered, the occupied, the defeated, and this is what makes it prophetic. We know that history is written by the winners. This is true, except in the case of the Bible, it's the opposite. This is the subversive genius of the Hebrew prophets. They wrote from a bottom up perspective. Imagine a history of colonial America written by Cherokee Indians and African slaves. That would be a different way of telling the story. And that's what the Bible does. It's the story of Egypt told by the slaves. The story of Babylon told by the exiles. The story of Rome told by the occupied. What about those brief moments when Israel appeared to be on top? In those cases, the prophets told Israel's story from the perspective of the peasant poor as a critique of the royal elite. Every story is told from a vantage point. It has a bias, and the bias of the Bible is from the vantage point of the underclass. But what happens if we lose sight of the prophetically subversive vantage point of the Bible? What happens if those on top read themselves into the story, not as imperial Egyptians, Babylonians, and Romans, but as the Israelites? That's when you get the bizarre phenomenon of the elite and entitled using the Bible to endorse their dominance as God's will. This is Roman Christianity after Constantine. This is Christendom on crusade. This is colonists seeing America as their promised land and the native inhabitants as Canaanites to be conquered. This is the whole history of European colonialism. This is Jim Crow. This is the American prosperity gospel. This is the domestication of scripture. This is making the Bible dance a jig for our own amusement. So if this is true, If the Bible was written from the poor, the marginalized, and the exile, if the Bible is a slave's discourse, then how much more should our gospel inform us not only to feed the poor, yes, and not only preach to the poor, absolutely, and to serve the poor, but also to learn from the poor. But this assumes relationship, doesn't it? In a culture that doesn't usually value or carve out enough time for relationship. So it doesn't really happen. We continue to preach to the poor, serve to the poor, feed the poor. We don't learn from the poor. But that's exactly who the teachers are in the Bible. The poor are the ones writing the Bible, instructing from the Bible, speaking in and through the Bible. It's those who have been pushed to the side. 
So, number one of the last two things, um, let's intentionally engage in learning relationships with the marginalized. Wherever is in the wherever the best places are in the Vancouver community to do that, uh, Jesus people. Are, they do that. That's what they do. This means stepping into the awkward, first together as a community, asking people of another color or another culture or class, asking them, hey, in light of this last summer's events, like, what's it like being you? Tell me your story. What's it like being you? And, and how do you feel this week? Invite them into your home for a long meal and then listen and be present it's very easy, and this is absolutely my problem, it's very easy to treat the poor as ministry targets and not as like people, um, like actual potential friends. So learn from the marginalized. And number two, finally, stand in solidarity with the marginalized and the afflicted in their pain, even at a cost to you, and even sometimes especially if you don't understand what's going on all the way. So it's been observed many times uh, that uh, racism in the greater Portland and Vancouver area, it's unique. It's been observed. I've read columns and I've talked to some black friends in the community here because it's less like racism here. It's less like elephants in the streets circa 1960s or like whatever in Alabama. It's less like elephants in the streets, although that does happen, and more like termites in the walls. It's not the kind that everyone sees all at once. It's not the overt kind that's explosive. It's the kind that you only really feel if your own house is the one being eaten away at the framework. The kind that makes people walk the long way around you on an empty street after they snap an iPhone pick of your license plate in an alley. It's that kind. Which is a story from our community. So a very powerful and tangible way of showing kindness to the oppressed is this, to stand in solidarity, to stand with, in their pain, present, standing with them, someone of another culture and way of life who's suffering, embodying Christ's incarnate presence to resist the oppression that they're experiencing that you may not understand. And this includes doing so. Again, if you've don't understand pain or the plight or because of whatever class differences or lenses were given um, by whatever institutions we've been a part of, even if it costs us our reputation or our life even. And uh, just this final story. Uh, how many of you remember Mexico City Olympic Games, 1968? One of the most powerful and stunning stories, not just of sports history, but of the history of human rights in America. Tommy Smith, Ring a bell, anyone? Tommy Smith, John Carlos, and uh, another guy, uh, Peter Norman. Well, the 1968 Olympics, six months after MLK was assassinated, it was in Mexico City, two black Americans won gold and bronze in the 200 meter. Very, very fast. Uh, one of their times was at the same time Usain Bolt ran the 200 meters in this year. Uh, that was by Tommy Smith. So Tommy Smith and John Carlos, can, can I see a picture? There they are. So Tommy Smith, first place. John Carlos, third place. And see their black gloved hands. That's the Black Power salute. They were explicitly instructed by the Olympic International Committee, no demonstrations of any kind, nothing. And see those white badges on their left chest. They, that's, uh, 
the uh, Olympic Project for Human Basic Human Rights or something like that. Olympic Project for Human Rights badges. They were made underground and brought in. They were smuggled <laughs> to Mexico City by the American Olympic team, specifically the men's running team and the men's rowing team got them in. And uh, they wore them on the pedestals as a protest. And they actually only had, like, John Carlos, the, the third place guy, he left, he left his two black gloves in the room. And like, oh, shoot, I don't have it. We're about to get our medals. And Peter Norman on the left, this guy goes, why don't you just swap and, and have one on the right and one on the left, showing that you're two hands, one body. And, and they're like, oh, that's great. And so they did that. And Peter's like, actually, can I have one of those? And uh, Peter's an Australian runner who's smoking fast. His time would have won. The time he ran that, that day would have won him the gold in Sydney 2000 uh, in his own country. Uh, but unfortunately, he never made it to Sydney because as soon as he got back from these games, his own country of Australia ostracized him, shamed him, and never mentioned his name again, didn't allow him to run in Munich, although he was a shoo-in for the gold globally because he stood in solidarity with the Black Power Salute. And uh, this is, my friends, what it looks like, very applicable to us in our context. Most of us in this room uh, share the same skin color as Peter, yet we can also share the same sentiment and the same solidarity with those of other color cultures and races that are suffering uh, in a time when they most need it and when the system says not to protest. Um, so, there they are. Uh, it may not look like Peter's doing much, but it cost him everything. When he got back to, all, to Australia, he had a horrible life. He would run maybe like one more time in like a charity exhibition and snap his Achilles heel and get gangrene and have his leg amputated and then with the pain meds and the, still no one talking about him, with the pain meds and alcohol, Basically, in 2006, he ran himself into the ground and got, had a heart attack and died. Um, and without, he died without ever having an apology from his country for how they treated him for standing with the oppressed. As a matter of fact, we have statues in our very own city of San Jose, California, that omit him. Uh, so he, he's not there. Tommy Smith and John Carlos are there. Praise God they're there. Um, but Peter Norman's statue was left off uh, because of the time, this time the statue was built, it, they didn't see fit to include him. Um, but he was not forgotten because at his funeral, look here, here's his funeral. He is deceased in the coffin and his front left and right pallbearers are his running mates, Tommy Smith and John Carlos. They're there for him in his death standing with him, carrying his body into the ground, celebrating his life. Uh, and this has become one of the uh, paradigmatic stories in our current age, um, as racism is still, is, is brand new. Uh, not brand new, it's a, it's a newly um, fiery and frontline and forefront topic. This, this story is finally being circulated globally. <laughs> Uh, in a way that it should have been. You see, the gospel comes. The all lives matter message of the gospel comes and it's brought 
into the forefront by the lives of those who don't matter. And when that happens, when the gospel comes and the cross comes to create a new community, as Paul called this, he called it one new man in Christ, the new community. This is, this, is, this is symbolic of the new community in Christ. Paul was specifically talking about the way the gospel brings together ethnic Jews and ethnic Gentiles into one new community when he talked about the one new man. This one new man is one of the goals of the gospel. It's a new way of living. And that new way of living assumes that all of us have to be willing to die like our Savior did. <laughs> kind of like Peter Norman did. If anyone wants to save their life, they lose it. But if anyone wants to lose their life for my sake, Jesus said, they find it. So you and I will find our life. We will understand what it means to truly be human, to be a full human person in a full human community when we're around other people who don't think, act, or function like we do. When we stand with them in their pain, when we intelligently speak out against systems of power that keep them marginalized, silenced, and outside. So church, may we be the prophetic community of the spirit that isn't afraid to get our hands dirty by speaking and living for the outsider.